Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. There have been great strides taken in getting children some education, but more than half of all 10-year-olds from poor and middle-income countries are still unable to read and understand a short passage. With the predictions of climate-related disasters, and migration becoming reality, the access to quality education may, well, slip further away from us. And education is just one social issue that is already on the verge or indeed sliding the wrong way. Poverty, nutrition, safe housing, all similar stories. So how can we accelerate the emergence and scale of positive ideas and solutions? Non-governmental organisations, NGOs, and charities and the like have been working on these sorts of solutions for decades, many with great results, but often tied mercilessly to a specific pot of funding or grant, which means that when the money runs out, so the positive impact. How can we therefore break out of this vicious cycle? How can we empower those with the ideas and the solutions to nimbly get going, to pivot when needed, to scale their positive impacts? and keep going when the money runs out. Meet social impact pioneers, Paul Ronalds and Isaac Nyangelo. Paul is the brains behind Save the Children's Global Ventures, venturing within and for an NGO, responsible for taking innovative finance and new technologies to scale, whilst Isaac is the social entrepreneur. He's the co-founder and CEO of Zaraki, the Nairobi-based edtech startup that creates tools to make teaching and learning effective, engaging and productive, and the beneficiary of Save the Children's Global Ventures. Together, they are going to talk about the challenges and opportunities of venturing across sectors. Isaac, Paul, welcome. Great to be with you, Katie. Thank you for having us, Katie. Oh, I'm I'm delighted. And Isaac, I wanted to start our conversation with you. You are the co-founder and CEO of Zeraki. You have passionately devoted your career to education technology. Can you tell us a bit about the journey that you've been on? What brought you to this and also the work that you're doing at the moment? Thank you, Katie. So I come from an educational family. My grandfather well, was, a, was a teacher and so was my uh, grandmother. My, both my parents in the teaching profession. My mother was an elementary school teacher. My dad started off as a secondary school teacher and uh, ended up as the dean of one of the universities in Kenya. And uh, even though I come from that strong heritage of education with a lot of advantages that uh, it comes with, I also had a taste of uh, I also had a taste of uh, the inequalities that the Kenyan education system has. So my earliest memories of lower uh, primary school education, my, my, my memory of 
nursery school education was literally uh, studying under a tree, spreading out the soil with our palms so that we could write out uh, A, B, C, Ds on, a, on the sand. And only when our writing was great on the, on the soil would we get uh, exercise books sliced into two so that we would save space on it. And that was the educational experience for a lot of the people in my village. Uh, but then my parents moved me to the city where the educational opportunity was so much better. Studied in uh, some pretty good public primary schools. Went on to study in one of the best public national schools in Kenya. Becoming one of the top students. I was the third-ranked student in our national high school leaving examinations. And following from that, had the opportunity to attend Harvard University where I studied engineering. So literally having... Uh, from having an experience with uh, perhaps the worst that uh, the education system had, also had an opportunity to have the best opportunities uh, within the public education sector, and eventually having an opportunity to study in one of the world's best education institutions. And I think it makes a difference. Uh, it, it shapes the way you end up thinking about the system and the privileges that you've received. and give some sense of responsibility towards uh, what you can do to make the system better for everybody else. After studying uh, at Harvard University, getting a degree in engineering, I came back to Kenya and that's in 2007. And a few years later, I was working with the Education Foundation of one of the largest uh, financial institutions in Kenya, uh, the Equity Bank. That's another equity group foundation. And we had a scholarship program serving economically deprived students transitioning from primary school to university. And our hypothesis at the time was that if you remove the financial burden out of this transition, then with one last problem to worry about, the students will be able to do so much better in the high school. It didn't occur to us that transitions is not just about the financial challenges, but there's a larger academic and psychosocial challenges that affect students during those transition uh, elements. That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Isaac. And I, I do feel completely sort of humbled in, in the presence of a massive brain um, to have become, you know, so highly ranked in your in your country and then and go off and do engineering at Harvard. And I can't imagine that engineering is anything other than one of the toughest subjects going. Paul, I wanted to bring you in now slightly to sort of change tack here because you are part of say the children who have recently set up global ventures and you're heading this up which is it sounds a bit different and for anybody listening we are going to bring these two threads together very shortly but Paul would you mind giving us a bit of introduction to what global ventures means to save the children and and how you come to be part of that yeah thanks Katie so I think most of your listeners will have heard of Save the Children, one of the world's largest non-government organisations, about 25,000 staff working across uh, 120 or so countries. <clears throat> We've traditionally relied on uh, philanthropy and grants as our main funding mechanism. And increasingly over, I think particularly the two decades that I've been involved in aid and development, it's increasingly clear that the traditional approaches to both funding and to how we achieve impact, in our case, uh, impact for children, uh, are clearly not going to allow us to achieve the missions that we have, the very ambitious missions that we have. And 
one of the things that became very clear to me over the nearly 10 years that I was um, CEO of Save the Children in Australia was that we needed to really be prepared to diversify what I would call our, our business model. And what that means in practice is that um, we started in Australia uh, looking at new business models. We started investing directly into ed tech, education technology businesses. Uh, we set up uh, ourselves and founded a range of social enterprises. Some of those had consulting type business models. Uh, some of them had uh, sort of project development type, project management um, business models. So we started experimenting with a range of these different business models. And then over a number of years, uh, the rest of Save the Children started to think about these uh, types of models. And there are other pilots going on in, in the UK and in India and other parts of Save the Children. And so late last year, the global Save the Children movement said, actually, let's bring these, some of these different business models together and create Save the Children Global Ventures to essentially be, if you like, our dedicated entity that helps us tackle some of these new forms of funding, what we broadly call as innovative finance uh, funding mechanisms, and helps us take new technologies to scale. And so essentially, that's now the mission of Save the Children. I finished up as um, the CEO in Australia to head this new global entity that uh, has just um, celebrated its 12-month anniversary. 12 months. Look at you. About time to start walking. <laughs> Very exciting. Congratulations, first of all. And therefore, as I promised to anybody listening, how do you two come to be working together? Isaac, perhaps would you mind going first? How did you come across Save the Children and, and the Global Ventures work that they're up to? I think you could do. So we started uh, as a Raiki, which is a startup that I ran about uh, eight years ago. And uh, we've been able to get a lot of traction using funding from our friends and uh, our family. And uh, in by 2021, we had about 40% of the Kenyan high schools using our platform and uh, thinking about expanding the scale of our reach by providing more products and services and also moving to other countries. And that's when we realized that the, uh, the funding that was available to us and the insight that we needed also to then expand to all those other countries who didn't have access to it. And we reached out, uh, not just uh, for institutional investment to extend, to, to get a capital to extend the reach of our work, but also to get partners who will be able to provide the insight for us to be able to move into those new areas. And uh, that's how we got to learn about the Silver Children Global Investment uh, Fund. And the attraction for us was that not just about access to capital, but access to the networks and access to the insights to admit. I mean, if you think about it, uh, when it comes to education, educational products or impact products, it's not just about finding a business model that generates uh, revenue and profit. It's about making an impact in the lives of the students or the, the schools that we work with and finding a partner that is able to appreciate both of the educational insight, the educational goals that we have as a company but also be able to provide us with a capital to achieve those goals or something that was really critical for us. Yeah, I can suddenly see that kind of like absolute sweet spot there. And what about yourself, Paul? So what attracted you to Isaac and the work that he's been up to? Well, I mentioned a little earlier in the podcast, Katie, that we started experimenting with different business models and different funding mechanisms. And one of those was impact investing. Some of your listeners might know the Global Impact Investing Network suggests there's about $1 trillion of impact investing globally. 
And we wanted to start to plug into that. So uh, about three years ago, Save the Children Australia established the first impact investment fund, child-focused deep impact investment fund run by uh, a charity uh, actually anywhere in the world. And we started looking around for um, great investments that were closely aligned with Save the Children's mission. And, And as Isaac said, this wasn't a motivation from Save the Children to make profit per se. We we wanted to provide a return back to the investors because we want to attract capital going forward. But from a Save the Children perspective, our main motivation was the impact um, that these investments could have, and particularly for Save the Children, helping us significantly transform the way that we deliver impact, whether it's health or education impact around the world. The aid and development industry, I think, has been really poor at identifying and then scaling, particularly scaling, these new technologies into their programming. And so we're looking around the world for great entrepreneurs uh, doing things in education and health and child protection. And we uh, heard about Isaac and Zaraki Analytics uh, and realized um, that they really were just the sort of enterprise that we were looking for. Homegrown uh, in Kenya, deeply understanding the context of Kenyan education. They had a product that was really well suited to that context, and they already had great traction. And that's really the sweet spot for Save the Children's Impact Investing. We want to get behind entrepreneurs like Isaac um, that are already starting to prove themselves and really help them turbocharge both their impact um, and their business growth. Uh, So as Isaac said, use the networks and relationships, um, do introductions that can really accelerate Zaraki's growth. Oh, it's super exciting. But it also sounds kind of too good to be true. (laughs) Paul, I want to stick with you. Surely it's not that easy. I mean, just to find that sweet spot in the first place, but also, as you mentioned just now, that kind of challenge around scaling innovation for impact and potentially even change education systems. Why is it even a problem in the first place? But also, what is the truth in terms of how you do it? What's the learning perhaps that uh, you might have been on that you could share with others listening? Yeah, so Katie, I mean, you're absolutely right. It hasn't been an easy journey. And I think that doing this sort of transformational innovation in large non-government organisations is particularly hard. And I think it's particularly hard in the aid and development industry because For an organization like Save the Children, our main funders are governments around the world. Governments are highly risk averse. And over time, organizations like Save the Children have become very compliance orientated because that's what their main funders want them to be. Um, That's how they get judged by those funders and that's how they get rewarded with more funding. And so to introduce into that sort of a culture, that compliance orientated culture, a more risk-taking, entrepreneurial, agile um, type of mechanism like impact investing is has been hard. It's hard convincing the boards of organisations like Save the Children that this is a risk worth taking. And so we've really had to paint out what I see as the sort of enormous burning platform. And I think it's you know really clear, and I constantly reinforce this with boards around Save the Children, that we're simply not going to achieve our mission for children unless we are open to these new ways of working. As Isaac knows really well, there's about nearly 70 million teachers that are needed if we're going to achieve uh, universal education by 2030. 
we're not going to find another 70 million teachers. So we have to find new ways of intervening, use uh, new technologies like the ones that Zaraki have developed to be able to uh, help teachers be more effective in terms of, uh, of the learning that they're trying to do. And so building up that burning platform with, with our boards, constantly working on the culture uh, within organisations like Save the Children, getting people comfortable that not all of our investments will be uh, successful, that we'll have to deal with failure and that this is a risk worth taking. And then, of course, dealing with capacity gaps. There are some things that Save the Children is really strong in. Impact measurement, for example, is a particular strength, but the financial management of mechanisms like impact investing is not something that is a traditional strength of Save the Children. So we've had to go out and bring in a whole range of new skills and capabilities to complement those within Save the Children to run an effective impact investment fund. So there's certainly been been many, many challenges, and, and I wouldn't say we've arrived anywhere yet, Katie. You know, we've launched one impact investment fund. Uh, we recently launched a second. So it's still relatively early on in our journey. And as it is with the other sorts of mechanisms, blended finance, loan mechanisms that we're, we're piloting at Global Ventures. Massive journey, but, but importantly laid out there, Paul. I want to come back to you in a minute around that, that piece around needing 70 million new teachers and, and we're just not going to find them. So in a minute, we're going to talk about that. But Isaac, I wanted to bring you in at this point in terms of the education system that you're seeing and why innovation is needed, why do we need to change education systems from your experience? And particularly in terms of trying to get new technology and the work that you're doing kind of apps embedded and absorbed into a system. What's your experience there, Isaac? When you think about like uh, innovation within the education system, we need it because education affects every single facet of our lives and we live in an ever-changing world. Education influences shape, influences and shapes the way we, uh, we perceive the world and also how we react to the challenges that are there. So if the world wasn't changing, I mean, if you're thinking about uh, whether it is in agriculture, industrialization, employment, the circumstances that we faced 10 years ago are very different from the circumstances that we face right now. And education being traditionally one of those areas where a lot of consensus is needed to change uh, any little thing uh, or to bring everybody on board to then respond to these challenges means that most education systems are not in tune with the uh, uh, current challenges that exist uh, within each of those societies. And uh, Paul mentioned one of the key constraints government faces when it comes to innovation and need to be compliant. I mean, uh, I would add uh, the other face of it is uh, there is a version that most governments have, or most policymakers have they need to think a lot about the risk that any new change will cause to the system. Another thing that I think uh, is very top of mind to many governments that are making policy around education is the need for uh, equity, not just having a solution that works for the few, but trying to get us get a solution that works for as many people within the ecosystem. These two then, just these two alone, end up making innovation from a public sector perspective. Uh, really difficult because uh, when private sector organization can pretty much iterate through various models by first finding uh, the pockets where that innovation will work in, government will typically want to find something that works for everybody. And that's typically something that's very mature. So our experience has found that 
organizations like ours are able to innovate pretty quickly on the edges. But then the challenge comes in when uh, these same organizations want to mainstream their innovations across the board. Tech teacher training, for instance, it's tried and tested to take teachers through a physical university or education system, have physical, let's say, supervisors doing the in-service training and everything. But their ability for the governments to adopt technology, both for the training and for the support, is limited. But even if these innovations come from the private sector, they then need to work with the policymakers, work with them to change their existing um, modes of support and something that private sector organizations are not very well attuned to. So when you have organizations like Save the Children who've had an experience working with uh, governments, policymakers coming in and sitting in between the nimble entrepreneurs who are able to iterate through various models that would work, it creates an opportunity for, for the whole ecosystem to benefit from the nimbleness of entrepreneurs, to benefit from and then scale, use the government's ability to scale all these innovations to then end up changing the ecosystems. So yes, there's the need for innovation, there's pockets of innovations everywhere, there's connectors like so the children coming into the mix that then provides an opportunity for innovation to create impact, something that governments are very good at. I literally never thought about this. It sounds ridiculous. And I'm sure anybody who's working in this system is like nodding along, but it makes so much sense as you you have both laid out in terms of that challenge between risk adversity, have to provide for everybody that kind of governmental responsibility of spending the taxpayers' money versus we need to change this. It's broken. We need to think radically and do some take some risks in it. And 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 that's such so against how sort of governments are set up. Paul, I wanted to bring you back in in, in terms of anything you wanted to sort of respond to in terms of what um, Isaac has just said, but also why do you think that sort of social enterprise, but also impact investing is potentially a good path through this innovation challenge for education and how governments might, you know, what might be your advice to governments who are sort of looking at this in terms of be brave, take it on? Yeah. So there's um, two or three different parts in in that, Katie. So perhaps just um, picking up on a few things that Isaac has said. I mean, sitting back from a sort of global, say, the children perspective, I mean, the other piece in all of this around the innovation is that we've got to actually teach children quite differently around data and digital skills than what they've needed in the past. And if I think about my own children in Australia, um, they get to use, you know, ed tech tools all the time. Um, you know, they go to a, a very, you know, a terrific school in Melbourne and, you know, at both at school and when they come home after school, they're able to engage into those ed tech platforms. Um, that's not the case uh, in most schools around the world. And, and most kids don't have that same privilege that, that my children have. And yet that's exactly the sorts of skills and capabilities that we need to make sure that every child anywhere in the world uh, has. I mean, I think the, the numbers are something like total education spend is expected to be about $10 trillion by 2030. And about 10% of that $10 trillion would be on ed tech. That's a 500% increase on where we are at the moment. But I would say that my children in Australia are pretty much already using ed tech 10% of the time. So in the rest of the world, we've got to have this massive step up. So we've got to find the sorts of great local innovation uh, that Zaraki is an exemplar of 
and help find ways to really scale them across the world so that they start to be able to meet that that huge demand. So that digital literacy for me as a sort of you know core child rights uh, issue, uh, it's not in the, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, but I think if that convention was written today, it would be that we've got to find ways to, to really lay that out. Uh, in terms of uh, governments uh, in impact investing, I mean, this has been a really difficult journey for us too. You know, obviously, Save the Children gets a lot of grants um, from governments, and a lot of governments are, you know, under strain from a aid and development expenditure perspective. And and one way they are responding is by putting um, significant assets into development finance institutions, DFIs is the is the acronym, and because that, of course, doesn't uh, represent expenditure on their their annual profit and loss uh, statements or uh, annual budgets, it sits on their balance sheets and therefore is accounted for differently. The problem we're finding with the way that governments are thinking through these sorts of aid and development investments through development finance institutions is that they are still often approaching it like a grant, and it's completely unsuitable for doing investing in the sorts of social enterprises that um, Isaac has founded. I'll give you an example, if we want to take money from a DFI as an investor into our impact investment funds, we can't have more than depending on the DFI, between 2 and 5% of our portfolio domiciled outside of a country that is eligible for development assistance. Yet any entrepreneur like uh, Isaac and his team, they want to be domiciled in a Singapore or even in the United States, uh, somewhere like that, because they're thinking about the sorts of capital that they will need in the future to really take their business to scale. And yet that domiciling, basing their company in a Singapore or the United States or some other non-ODA-eligible country immediately disqualifies them from being invested in by the very organisations, these DFIs, that evidently were created to help scale those enterprises. So you can see at the very heart of the way that governments are approaching uh, supporting social enterprises, putting aside investment money for these social enterprises, they've at the same time put rules around it that essentially undermine that, that very purpose. So We've proceeded with our impact investment funds without any DFI investments at the moment because we just say that's actually too restrictive for the very sorts of entrepreneurs like Isaac that we're wanting to support. Again, it makes so much sense, that piece where you're thinking, okay, practically we've got a whole global market. How do we make our business as profitable, as scalable as possible? We've, we've got to look at the whole world for this. And then, as you say, you just you lose access to, to pieces because of rules and regs, which I'm sure originally set up for really important reasons, you know, where your money's going to be spent. But it becomes, it's the devil's in the detail. It's always in the detail, Paul. And Isaac, I wanted to bring you back in at this point. So from your personal experience with support from organisations like Save the Children through this venture capital type mechanism, how does that work for you? Is it, what does it enable you to do that traditional kind of grant funding might not? But also. Tell us a bit about your plans for um, Zaraki. Where are you going with it? What's what's your plan? Uh, thank you. So when I think about uh, my own experience with, with a grant versus uh, impact funding, uh, is shaped by strongly shaped by the experience of uh, um, my my friend who works in health tech, which in a similar way is um, is an industry where the impact is mainly on the human side of it rather than on the capital or rather on the financial side of it and uh, the way he framed it and uh, that really shaped off 
uh, our focus uh, at the beginning to essentially avoid a lot of grant funding was when you wake up every morning, if you have a grant, you're thinking about the grantees, whatever the grant making organizations uh, priorities, rather than thinking about the priorities of coming up with a sustainable business model. This is not to say that there isn't need for such uh, a kind, but an organization as an entrepreneur is thinking about how do I come up with a commercial model that is sustainable over the long term? And uh, that in many cases differs significantly with the aims of a grant, which might be say over the next two years, we need to, in that case, it was strengthening health outcomes for entrepreneurs in a specifically narrowly defined uh, sense. So the ad, uh, the advice then and what ended up shaping our perspective was if you want to think very deliberately about the long-term goals of your organization, avoid uh, that kind of restricting grant funding. And what impact funding gives us is that opportunity to solidly think about what works for the business in the long term, enabling you to make those micro decisions, which will be what am I going to do over the next three months to support my uh, two-year goal and if three months down the line I think I need to make a different decision it's something that I don't need to go back to the grant maker to say that I'm changing the model that I pitched to you a year ago I simply make that uh, decision as an, as an organization to be able to support that and that has been quite enabling because it means you can shift uh, priorities from one product to another without a specific regard to the specific commitments you went to a grant making organization for our case, the funding and support we're getting from uh, Save the Children have, just in the last year, given us the confidence to think about expanding to other countries. Twelve months ago, we were only we only had a presence in Kenya. At the time, Save the Children uh, Impact Fund joined us in December. We only had a presence in two additional countries in Africa, Uganda and Guinea. But over the last six months, we've expanded our presence to an additional seven countries. We also strengthening our involvement in uh, two product lines, uh, digital learning and uh, financial services, essentially targeting how to provide micro payment solutions to parents who are able to let's say they have a day wage. And as a result, if it was possible for them to pay their school fee in daily installments or weekly installments, that's something we haven't had the solution in Kenya to enable parents as it may be to pay uh, on the go. This is the kind of support that uh, having additional capital, but also having an opportunity to uh, get partnerships in different countries is enabling us to do. Oh, and I wish you all the very best, Isaac. I'm learning so much in this conversation. Um, thank you very much for both of you taking me on this journey, because um, it makes, as I said earlier, so much sense when it's laid out as you guys have, but you just don't think about the difference of a grant versus an impact investment. So thank you for sharing that. And and Isaac, I'll make sure I put the links into the work that you're doing to the words that sit alongside this. So anybody who's listening, do take a look, do follow Isaac. The work he's doing is incredible. And Paul, I wanted to bring you in now. We are coming to the end of our conversation. I feel like I could stay here listening to you guys forever and I've got a lot more to learn. But I wanted to ask for your work, for the impact investments, for the venture capitaling activities, how do we continue to scale and make sustainable and yet flexible impacts? What would be your advice for anybody listening? But also what's next for you in this space? 
Yeah, so, I mean, the whole reason for creating Save Your Children Global Ventures from a Save Your Children perspective was to bring together the capabilities that are required for these new business models for, for pursuing innovative finance mechanisms to allow them to grow to scale. So rather than having a whole series of small pilots across the Save the Children movement, bring them together, create a centre of knowledge and expertise and capability so that we could scale them. But it was also really important, Katie, that we placed Global Ventures, I guess what I call, in, in what I call the Goldilocks zone. Uh, it needs to be close enough to the sort of main part of Save the Children to be able to leverage the great connections and capabilities that Save the Children has and that Isaac has has referred to as being attractive, but not so close that we're subject to that same sort of compliance culture, risk averse, et cetera, that might be more part of the sort of traditional Save the Children approach. And, and if we can get that balance between leveraging the best of Save the Children and avoiding some of these issues that, that perhaps are, are not as conducive to the sort of entrepreneurial agile uh, approach that that Isaac is is an exemplar of, then I think we've got the right sort of makeup to be able to take this to scale. And and what we're hoping uh, is that over the next few years that we one create a series of impact funds. Um, as I said, we have this one pilot, small pilot in Australia. We've just launched a larger um, second fund, and later this year or early in 2024, we're hoping to launch a, a third impact investment fund, which will give us that really, you know, a significant pool of patient capital to find the best ed tech and health tech interventions around the world. Um, so that's the sort of first part. A second part is that we're uh, working with a lot of our country offices around blended finance proposals. I do think um, blended finance has a lot of potential for Save the Children to, to mix grants and philanthropy alongside private sector funding to get a lot more leverage uh, and therefore a lot more impact for the money that, that we bring in. And the third area that we're really excited about is climate finance. I mean, I think the transition that we're under, all undergoing at the moment has got a long way to go. There's going to be a lot of funding associated with that. And if we can just get a small part of that to be able to use effectively by communities that say the children cares most about, I think that could be a really significant sustainable source of funding. I mean, the figures are, are quite daunting in one sense. You know, it's estimated there's about a $3 trillion per annum funding gap to achieve the SDGs. But when you put that into context of sort of total global private sector investment of about $410 trillion, we only need to shift 1% or 2% of total private sector funding to have it more aligned with achieving the SDGs, and we've closed that funding gap. So I'm hoping that, you know, the big picture Katie, is that the sorts of things that we're doing at Save the Children will be copied by other NGOs. Uh, and you know, over time, we'll see a whole range of, you know, a whole lot more of private sector capital going towards goals that are aligned, better aligned with the SDGs. And therefore, the sort of uh, impact that we need to have to achieve them will get a lot closer to achieving. Oh, I love a positive end to a podcast. Paul, thank you very much for sharing that. And I, I, we must come back and have an entire new conversation on blended finance. It's been rumbling around for such a long time and yet nobody seems to have really cracked it. It pops up and then it goes away again. And so, yeah, let's, let's do that. But for now, I want to say a massive thank you to both of you for giving your time so generously to us today. Paul, Isaac, the very best of luck. You need to succeed, both of you. And um, I look forward to both of you coming back and telling us how it all gets on. Paul, Isaac, thank you. Thanks, Katie.
And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 